Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Miami just dodged a major bullet. A few days ago, Hurricane Irma looked like it was going to slam the Magic City with a direct ferocity that hasn't been felt since maybe 1926. But even though the monster swerved, much of downtown Miami ended up looking like a post-apocalyptic water world. There's more money than ever in that booming skyline, but the costs and pain of pushing back the water are increasing as well. Here with Miami's Water Torture. Stay with us. This week's episode is made possible by the support of our friends at Elwood Thompson's, the best market in Virginia. Hands down, I'll tell you a hundred times. I'm there three, four, five times a week. I practice what I preach. You must check them out at the corner of Elwood and Thompson's at the top of Carytown at elwoodthompsons.com. The success of this great store is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. They want to grow the business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. They are a mission-first driven business and as real local RVA as they get. Please check them out again at the corner of Elwood and Thompson's and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from a waterlogged Miami where they're trying to dry out and, and uh, maybe looking outside her office and seeing sailfish driving up and down the street <laughs> is Alicia Cervera La Madrid. How do you like my Miami accent? She's managing partner at Cervera Real Estate in Miami, which specializes in waterfront and luxury residential real estate. You and your sister, Veronica, are known in the trade as the princesses of Brickell Avenue uh, because your mother, Alicia Sr., is the 87-year-old queen of Brickell Avenue. She founded your company in 1969, so you've seen a heck of a lot of boom and bust. How are you? I am doing great and happy to say not waterlogged at all, all dry and crispy here, so we're doing well. Let me ask you something. What is Miami selling in the end? I know you've seen this, heard of it. It was in the film Cocaine Cowboys. There is no fundamental industry there. It's like a lifestyle. And we, I, I, I covered the bust, the, the huge bust in 2008, 2009. And I never in a million years would have imagined that it would have snapped back and the skyline would have been completely unrecognizable within four or five years. Right. So I think you said it best when you said that what we sell is the lifestyle. And we've always sold the lifestyle in Miami. When Miami started, it was the vacation lifestyle. And, you know, you can go back to the Rat Pack and all of those eras and all of those times. And as we've evolved into a major city that intertwines the beauty of the beach with the hustle and bustle of the city, a major financial center and more and more significant economic engines, we continue to sell the lifestyle. And now it's not only a great place place to vacation, but a wonderful place to live and to raise your family. Alicia, why aren't people as worried? It seems like the national press and the coastal elites up north and out west are disproportionately worried about the climate climate change and sea level rise situation in Miami. You've seen magazine features. You've seen people well inland into Doral, several miles in complaining on high tide days where there's been no rain, that their parking lots are flooded. How in the world are the waterfront people not terrified of this? 
You know, I, th- I think that nature is something that we've always lived with and the ebbs and flows that come with it. So we've seen the, the coastline come closer and go further away over time. And I think that when you choose to live by the water, that's just part of your reality. We're here for a reason. We like being by the water. We can appreciate the beauty it has, and we learn how to deal with the challenges that come our way. So uh, for the most part, I think that people that, that live on the coast, not just Miami, but any coastal city in the world or any city that has a, a plateau or a, a base, if you will, that's uh, got shallow uh, water uh, coming uh, up towards it, if you will, um, I have great faith that we'll figure out how to deal with it as they have in Holland and in so many other places in the world. You saw this week that Brickell Avenue, which is kind of known as the Wall Street of Miami, which has all the the Pan American banks and the multinationals and a gorgeous restaurant scene. I mean, I frankly don't recognize the skyline compared with when I last lived on Brickell Avenue in in 1999. Um, the ocean kind of reclaimed it. The Miami River reclaimed it. You had you had streets and, and corridors turned into tributaries. Is that a preview of of what we could see with a much more aggressive hurricane season year in and year out? Well, you know, I think it's, it is a preview there. Every time that, that something like that happens, it's always a preview and there's always lessons to be learned. I'll tell you that, um, I would love it if the same photographers would take pictures of those same streets, even yesterday, because I came down, I left my house immediately after the hurricane and came running down to Brickell Avenue where our offices are. Um, mostly because I was concerned because after hurricane Andrew, we helped house hundreds of people. And I wanted to make sure that we were available to do that again. I'm pleasantly surprised at the fact that people don't need housing after this run. There was water intrusion, but there wasn't real damage to the structures. And by the time I got there the next day, all that water had receded. And I actually walked down 15th Street, which I think was the street that everybody covered, the corner of 15th and Brickell. I walked right across that street to go check my daughter's apartment, who lives on the corner of um, Bayshore Drive and 15th Street. And they had put up um, barriers for the water, like in fact, like six-foot or eight-foot barriers. And uh, that condo had electricity air conditioning, and an elevator running. So I have to tell you that um, we human beings learn our lessons, and we were very fortunate to have a governor that acted decisively. Uh, Rick Scott, uh, I only wish we could reelect him because he's termed out, and our um, mayor was wonderful. And top to bottom, the federal agencies, everybody really prepared. Um, They heeded the warnings, and the city was very prepared, and the water came in, and it went out. And it is incredible to see how the city's functioning again. And the FPNL, Florida Power and Light, has said that by Sunday, the entire state will have power back. Now, that is not without the help of 19,500 power workers that have come into the state of Florida from around the country. On my block, personally, I was rescued by people from Detroit. So I want to give a shout out. I think they call themselves the Power Army. And we are very grateful in Florida for the amazing work that they're doing. Alicia, but in the end, we, and I say we as a a lifelong Miami person, dodged a bullet. Had that hurricane not taken a kind of a westward tilt and, and then dissipated, I mean, Tampa dodged a bullet. We, you and I survived Hurricane Andrew in 1992, and while it was bad, it was disproportionately bad for South Miami and Homestead and Cutler Ridge. Um, what if what if that 1926 type event happens again in Miami? I mean, what what do you say then? What happens to a South Beach? What happens to a Brickell? What happens to all of these places that are built 
on the old, uh, you know, Rat Pack strip and they call it what little Moscow now, North Miami beach. There are whole <laughs> corridors that didn't exist back in, in 1926. You're talking about a swamp and you're right. talking about a, a huge metropolis right now. Yep. Well, look, I mean, what happened to Manhattan when Sandy hit? I think the, what happens is, you know, we'll deal with it when we wake up in the morning and we'll rebuild. And what we do know is that the fact that there's more of us uh, around means that there's uh, more of us to, to over, to overcome this and not everything will be taken out. At the, at the end of the day, we spend our entire lives dodging bullets, right? You wake up every morning, you don't get hit by a car, you come home, you've dodged a car. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what life is all about. So I think that we have to be prepared. We have to do the best we can, but that's life. You can live anywhere in the world. I mean, let's not forget there was, I think, a, an 8.5 category earthquake that happened in Mexico as we were preparing for this storm. California's had these horrendous fires that have been raging. We all know what happened to Houston. So I think as long as we're living and breathing, there are challenges and, and bullets to be dodged. The thing is you have to be prudent, you have to be prepared, and you have to be resilient. Hmm. Talk to me about the composition of the clientele you're dealing with. I mean, uh, everybody thought that this, uh, the enormous inventory overhang after subprime would have taken a decade to digest. Um, I, I just remember I was in a fishing boat. I was doing a story for Business Week and looking out at the coastline, looking at Brickell, looking at downtown Miami. It looked like a war zone in early 2009. A lot of these boxes were empty, but then we saw uh, South American buyers, foreign buyers showing up well into 2012, 2013, uh, putting in many cases 80% cash or more down and, and snapping up properties left and right. What's the motivation? So I'll tell you what happened really. Um, and, and I was in the thick of it. I was in the middle of closing several thousand units when that crisis hit. And I spent my entire day with bankers who were, of course, freaking out. And I remember that they kept saying to me, who's going to live in these? Who's going to live in these? And finally, one day, in total exhaustion, I took them up to the rooftop bar at the Viceroy, which was what they used to call the the eye of the condo storm because it was 1,800-unit complex called Icon. And from the 50th floor, I said, guys, please look west. And of course, there was bumper-to-bumper traffic for as far as the eye could see of people driving out of the city to go home. I said, do you see all those people there? I said, they're going to feel like they died and went to condo heaven. Because what's going to happen is that Brickell and the downtown area will be more affordable. And all of these people are going to move into these beautiful condominiums with their great gyms, their wonderful pools, and the access to this great city. And that's exactly what happened. And that occupancy is what triggered the success. The South Americans, of course, were looking at Miami that they love and uh, the Europeans to a less extent, but also love and saying, wow, our currencies are high. The dollar is low. Miami is super cheap. And they came in and started buying not with 80% down payments, with 100% down payment. So we had no leverage on these condos. So all of those condos were closed, all cash. We had tenants that flooded the city and all moved in. And once they got here, they were going to be absolutely darned if they were going to leave. So people made choices like getting rid of one car. Sometimes they got rid of two cars. You know, they took roommates, they stayed. Rents started coming up and up and up. And when I got the first call from a developer saying, Alicia, we're back in business, I said, what are you talking about? He said, have you looked at the occupancy numbers? We're north of 92%. It's going to take us three years to build the first condo. We are going to be grossly undersupplied. Mm. So occupancy is the key. 
And um, I know people are always saying that you want to have owner-occupied, but really it doesn't matter if it's owner-occupied or tenant-occupied. What is important is that it's occupied. And um, that's what happened in Miami. We have a huge population out west that would love to live east, and we have a city and a state that continues to be growing at a staggering rate, fed not only by the foreigners, but also by a country that every day understands more and more that this is a very livable city now because we have great culture. We have a great culinary scene. We have one of the best public school systems. Our superintendent in Dade County was recognized by the Obama White House, I'm going to say like three years ago, for the best in the country. We have UM that's now top 50. We've got the Miami-Dade College, which is one of the largest uh, public colleges in the country. You missed the most important thing. You've got public subs. We do. Pollo, and Gilbert's, tropical. And Gilbert's <laughs> pastelitos, you know? We're talking so. to Alicia Cervera La Madrid, managing partner at Cervera Real Estate. Um, really legendary in Miami. You and your mother and your sister, your mother is known as the queen of Brickell, which is the financial district in Miami. You've seen every cycle, uh, real estate boom bust cycle there since you know she started the firm in 1969. And you've represented more condominiums in South Florida than any other brokerage. I do want to get at a flight money. I know you're saying that occupancy is occupancy, but a lot of these people who have parked their reais or pesos or bolivars in the Miami skyline, is that is that out of a, a you know fearing some sort of expropriation or inflation at home that this is just like the the least bad option, or are they genuinely interested in the future of Miami? Do you think that that money is going to stay and grow? Um, I, I think it's both. I think these people are genuinely afraid. Honestly, the first flight capital was the Cuban one. It was intellectual capital mostly because we came with nothing. However, when we arrived here, our friends from the region and from all of South and Central America started calling and said, oh, my gosh, if that could happen in Cuba, it could happen anywhere. And that was the beginning of flight capital from South and Central America to the United States or at least to Miami at that point. And so that has continued. And and these people are very vested in the city. They love the city. When they, this is a place that is their home away from home, they do all kinds of business here. They can lose the security guards. They can wear their jewelry. The guys can drive their fancy cars. Their kids can run, you know, in the it's parks. It's a great, and play. by the way, it's a great place to launder money. If you haven't tried it, you must must try it. It's a great place to who? To launder money. Come on. To launder money. Oh, wash and wear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the hot money well, capital of the world. That's my hometown. To love it is to hate it. Come on. But, I mean, but listen, <laughs> one of the realities here is we talk a lot about laundered money. We talk a lot about that. What we don't talk so much about are these poor people in Venezuela, let's say, who have legitimate businesses that are having all of their legitimate businesses taken away from them. And who, by the way, if you move money out of a country and it's illegal in that country to take the money out, it's considered you're laundering money. Well, what the heck are your choices? You got this Maduro guy who's trying to steal everything you have. So you can launder your money by taking your hard-earned money out of Venezuela and bring it to the United States, or you can let this jerk steal it. Hmm. And I think we're not talking enough about those people. We have all kinds of systems in place to catch the bad guys who are laundering money. What are we doing to help the good guys that are trying to get their money out and out of the hands of the bad guys? Mm. What are we doing for those people? And, and what are we doing for our own economy to help the people that have legitimate money from all around the world, which is getting so hard to bring money into this country from London, from Paris, from anywhere? It's The American government is so obsessed with keeping bad money out that they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. 
And mm. you have access to all those big guys. You should talk to them about that. I'm just a squirrel trying to get a nut. You know, I'm just flattered that I could get you on my show, Alicia. Uh -huh. so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when talk you talk to one of those guys up in Washington, you tell them, hey, what are you doing to help the good guys? <laughs> tell me about flood insurance. You want to talk about Washington. I want to get a sense for how, if at all, flood insurance plays a role in this. I mean, we know that that uh, individual companies are not um, disproportionately represented in this sector. It's the government out there and the premiums are yeah. expensive. Uh, how much does it factor into a purchase, whether for the developer or for the uh, end unit people. And at, at some point, does it become so prohibitive that people are like, I just can't avoid, I can't afford the property? Well, look, it's a real big issue for single family homes, a huge issue. The reality is that the best thing that happened to flood insurance are condominiums because you're insuring the whole building and you really are only having to protect maybe three or four floors. Hmm. So condos are a big part of the economic engine behind flood insurance. Um, it's a, it's a, I had never thought about that until recently I was in Washington and they were talking about flood insurance on the national level, in particular in the coastal areas. So it is a big issue for the homes. And, um, so how does know, that work the, mechanically? Is that passed down through like a maintenance fee or an assessment? The yes, it's, it's the, the, um, it's, it's buried in your maintenance fee. Uh, for the most part, the condo flood insurance is there, but then condominium owners will have additional insurance and things like that. But the big heavy lifting is done through the condo association. So if you have this swank penthouse apartment on Brickell or in one of these newfangled neighborhoods, I'm telling you, Alicia, didn't, they didn't call it Midtown or the Upper East Side when I, I was know, there. I Miami mean, <laughs> was one neighborhood. It was called Miami. <laughs> you know, there's a swath of Overtown now they call Winwood or something. You know, it's, know. it's just all Miami. So if you have that, what goes into your nut and, and to what extent are you kind of inoculated from this? You could always get storm shutters. Suppose you're a South American family and you have one of these wraparound condos facing the water on Brickell, on South Beach, wherever. Uh, what yeah. happens during a Cat 4, Cat 5 storm? Look, it, you, you have the best deal on the planet. It's called lock and leave. So you bring in the furniture from your balcony and you go away. And your car is uh, usually taken into one of the, like, you know, the shopping mall. And you put it in a garage in a shopping mall and you leave. And then your condo association takes care of everything else. They have the engineer there. They turn off the power when they're supposed to. They have the inspectors come in afterwards. They have the pumps ready to go. They have the water walls that they put up if they need to protect it from surge. They have all of that stuff in place. You're chilling in your house in, you know, wherever you are, Rio de Janeiro or Paris or Manhattan. And um, all of your staff here is handling all of those issues. And then they're sending you emails saying, you know, in 22 minutes <laughs> – the engineer will be done inspecting your elevator, literally, and um, and let you know when the place is good to go. So how, when does it hit the tax base with, with infrastructure improvements? I mean, you flicked at it earlier. Um, the, the need for canals, I mean, this is looking out 10, 20 years, hopefully not sooner, but the mayor of Miami Beach, for example, has already been outspoken about the fact that at this point, it's not even about present, preventing sea level rise anymore, but but doing something to deal with the fact that the sea is is rising rapidly uh, in many cases. That, like I said, on on King Tide days, you go inland in Miami, and a lot of people have to go to work with plastic bags around their shoes because the water's gurgling up out of uh, the drains. Um, what does at what point do, do taxes go up to kind of commensurate? reflect this? You know, I think that the taxes um, have been going up organically in Miami because we've been building the city. 
So this year, the tax base, for instance, is going up. I, I forget the number, but it's an enormous number because we're delivering, again, several thousand residences. So we have a new city that is organically growing its tax base tremendously because we're delivering so many new residences and so many new buildings. And so that in and of itself is helping us build our infrastructure without mm -hmm. any need for increased taxes. We're just building more. So we have a, a bigger base from which to draw. Hmm. And in, in that, you know, when all of these buildings get built, they have to pay impact fees um, and they have to account for things like plugging into a sewer system or improving the sewer system or improving the electrical grid or improving the highways or whatever it, need, it is that needs to happen in parks and recreations and schools and all of those things. So in that regard, Miami's incredibly blessed because it is a new city. And so this is something that that's happening organically. And, um, you know, in Miami Beach, for instance, they did huge repairs to that. Now, without pointing any fingers, somebody might have checked those systems before they had the first problem. I mean, I don't know. It seems like a good idea. You have a storm coming. You check your generator. Somebody might have thought of doing that. Maybe they did and they didn't get it quite right. But that's, you know, Miami Beach's issue. So there are lessons to be learned as these new infrastructure projects are done. But they are being done and they're being done on an ongoing basis. Mm. Alicia, in the few minutes I have left with you, uh, please be candid and share what was going through your mind as the storm was approaching. As everybody thought that it would it would bullseye over Miami in a way that maybe we haven't seen in 90 years. Uh, what what could have happened? What do you actually fear in your most candid moments? Um, and and, and what, what keeps you up at night? Well, look, I think as um, most prudent people in Miami, um, we were all praying for the best. And uh, we were, again, I was incredibly grateful at the wonderful leadership of our governor who 10 days before the storm was known to be coming here, went and asked for disaster relief. Because I'm the type of person that firmly believes that um, we are not in control of our of our destiny. All we can do is be prepared for our destiny and respond quickly and appropriately. So um, I was uh, praying for the best, and uh, fortunately, I think that uh, we were spared the direct hit, and that this storm uh, mercifully spread itself out over many, many areas so that nothing was completely decimated, although certainly some people were hit much harder than we were, case in point, in Key West. And I think that that's uh, approach generally to life. Uh, was I very concerned, of course, and as I said, that's why we activated so quickly, because we wanted to be prepared to be able to, to pitch in and do our part, which is in the housing sector, of course, to help people get housing and get out of harm's way as quickly as possible. And finally, what what is it's it's very impossible to ask you. I'm sure a lot of people are asking you that they're, they're waiting to pull the trigger on a purchase. What is going to bring on the next bus to the extent that your family has been in this business again since 1969, almost 50 years? And yeah. you could go back in the Miami Herald and the old Miami News and look at countless bus, the savings alone bus. We talked about 2008, 2009. We talked about I think it was the the Argentine currency crisis and a lot of money was pulled out of uh, Miami. Uh, there was the boom during the you know the cocaine cowboy heyday uh, again this has been a really hyperbolic boom bust cycle and i'm sure people are asking you about what's going to knock down prices next what do you think well here's the good news and the bad news i think that if um, we compare miami to a person and you know people in their adolescent stages have a lot of ups and downs and swings and moods and blah 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 
But right now, the city has matured to a point where I think we're going to see less of that volatility because there's much more stability in our market. It's it's fed for many, many more countries and more locally and more permanent residents. So the good news is that we're going to be less volatile. The bad news is that there may not be that enormous opportunity for that great appreciation that we've seen um, in the last you know 20 years or 30 years even. That it's going to be our market, I think, is going to start responding much more like Manhattan or any major metropolitan market that's been well established over the years. And I think that that's going to be a growing trend. So right now, people were expecting, for instance, the rents to start dropping dramatically because we've had the delivery of all this product. And in fact, we have not seen that. There's been a slight downward adjustment and not in all categories of inventory. I think we've just grown up. And as most grown-ups, we've become more stable. Hmm. Alicia Cervera La Madrid, managing partner. They also call you Alicia Jr. because your mother, Alicia Sr. <laughs> Cervera, is known as the Queen of Brickle. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and come back soon. We're ready for you. Stay dry. All righty. Bye-bye. Joining us from Coral Gables, not far from downtown Miami and the storied University of Miami, is Nicholas Nahamas, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter at the Miami Herald. I give you props, sir, for even answering your phone on a rare day off after a 72-hour work bender. You camped out at the Miami Herald's Doral compound with friends and your fiancé, and uh, you were taking – you are slumming it to take my call, so I cannot thank you enough. Well, I'm I'm happy to be here, but yes, it was exhausting. My colleagues um, and I were working 72 hours. Some of them have worked longer than me, and yes, I was trapped in the Herald newsroom for three days. But I was uh, I was writing. My colleagues were actually going out into the storm while it was still happening to report. My my colleague David Ovalle actually weathered the storm in Key West. I know. He looked then, like he looked like an abused rooster. I think you put a picture of him on Twitter or something. The poor guy. It looks well, like he was sucked up by a tornado. Well tanned, but not well rested. But he so he <laughs> drove up from Key West um, through up the overseas highways through the middle and upper keys, which were devastated by the storm to report on the damage inflicted by Irma. Wow. Well, you, sir, that's why you get paid the big bucks, so you don't have to slum it down in the keys. <laughs> I'm just playing with you, as you know. Um, I, I thought that, look, when we were all um, biting our nails five, six days ago and worried that this would be the second coming of 1926 or maybe even a redo of Hurricane Andrew in 92, um, I immediately thought about that skyline and all of the South American and international money tucked away in it. And is this finally the, the you know, the... The straw that breaks the camel's back, the pin that pricks the enormous uh, uh, run-up in real estate prices there. And I was thinking about flood insurance and all these things, and I promised myself that if, if we survive the other end of this, I was going to give Nicholas a call. So what's your read? Tell us what's going on. Well, what's interesting about this storm is it missed us, really, in, in, in Miami. Yes, you know, Biscayne Boulevard and Brickle Avenue, the, the main drags that run through downtown Miami, uh, you know, across the Miami River, they became, they became themselves a river, three feet high, floodwaters, choked with debris, ruining cars, going into the lobbies of the older buildings that aren't raised up. But it drained by the next morning. It, it was gone. And, um, you know, we saw trees down everywhere. We did see significant damage, but 
the storm missed us. So, you know, it's hard even to imagine if, if there had been a direct hit on downtown Miami, what the toll would have been. I mean, even in tropical storm winds, we saw three construction cranes collapse. The arms snapped off the tower and were dangling off the side of the building. Luckily, no one was hurt in in those incidents. So I, I think it's going to raise a lot of questions about how well prepared Miami is for a direct hit. And if there's anything really that can be done for, for a, a, a major city that sits in a Cat 5 storm's path. Well, I got to ask you, we spoke to a veteran uh, real estate broker before you who deals with ultra high-end luxury, high-rise skyline apartments and knows Brickle and Coconut Grove and the beach very well. And she told me that by and large, investors are not, not plussed about this or, or the occupants of the places. They know you just bring everything in from the balcony, um, close up the shutters. The building takes care of it. There's flood insurance. I mean, you get called when the power is back on. That by and large, the new buildings seem to think that they're prepared for not just the storm like this, but everything we keep reading in the national press about um, the, the, the ultimate comeuppance with rising sea levels. And, and you know on King Tide how even people inland, even people in Doral, uh, well inland where you work, have to show up with plastic bags sometimes around their sneakers when we're at high tide. Well, I think you make a great point because, yes, these buildings physically themselves – may be able to survive the storms, but, but the question really becomes livability. I mean, if you have to wade through inches or even feet of water to get to work or to get into your condo, is that an attractive investment? Um, I think, you know, I think that's a question that investors may start to ask. Ha having said that, they are investors. They're part-time residents. Usually these are vacation homes or, you know, even lock boxes. Um, uh, the condo market, in some sense, is really a commodities market that just depends on the strength of the dollar. Um, so the, the concerns of, of these condo buyers don't always match the concerns of locals. Hmm. We do see, though, that is unusually sensitive. I mean, the, the, the sheer boom-bust vulnerability of this, to think back to emerging market currency crises. I lived on Brickell Avenue um, you know the the what do they call it the Wall Street of Miami in the late '90s, and that was that was overwhelmingly American money when Brazil and and the Latin American and Asian economies were having their rolling crises. You didn't see that much of a demand then, but over the past ten years, ex especially with concerns you see in Venezuela with expropriation in in Brazil with its deep recession, that people are even willing to take paper losses on. Miami property in the interest of just saving money over the long term. Losing 20% is better than, you know, losing 80%. I, I, people from um, these economies, whether usually in Latin America, but also Russia, having their money in dollars is, is just the safest thing in the world. They want their money here. Like you said, yeah, maybe they're taking a paper loss, you know, when they sell the condo, but now they have money in a stable economy. You know, what's interesting we've seen with the new administration is the dollar has actually started to weaken just based on concerns about American stability. Um, and that's actually been a good thing for the Miami condo market because it was struggling with such a strong dollar relative to the Brazilian, Argentine, Russian, Venezuelan currencies. I just don't recognize the skyline, Nicholas. I mean, I, I relative to hydrology or what has to be done or whatever canals or flood walls have to be put up, you see the mayor of Miami Beach is quite outspoken about this. But at what point does it come, 
you know, inland a bit more in all of these different areas, such as Coral Gables and Coconut Grove and uh, Miami-Dade and Aventura and Sunny Isles have to contend with uh, the broad existential issue of, of just there's too much water. The tax base is not high sufficiently enough to afford all of these infrastructure improvements that if flood insurance, if there's a tipping point there, I mean, does any of this stuff ever keep you up at night? Uh, I, it's, just not, it's not just me. You have the mayor of Miami who's a Republican. Yes, he's a Miami Republican, but he's still a Republican calling on President Donald Trump to acknowledge that climate change is, is behind these rising sea levels. He's really staked his uh, – he, he's term limited out, but he's pushing hard for a $400 million general obligation bond, much of which would go to pay for – anti-sea level rise improvements like pumps and uh, seawalls and and that sort of thing. So I think people here are very concerned, even if they live, you know, like you said, on the border of the Everglades. This water isn't just coming up from the sea, of course. It's coming up because we're built on limestone. It's coming up through the ground. At what point does it become something the, the infamous Army Corps of Engineers has to take up? Oh, well, that is a good question. I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I, I think if uh, – I mean, look at what's happening in Jacksonville right now. Again, this was not a Cat 5, Cat 4 storm that hit them, but, but because it had rain earlier um, and it was high tide, you, um, the storm just swept this water into the middle of the downtown. It really makes you wonder if, you know, did we make a mistake building this far south in Florida? Hmm. Close us out. Talk to me. What else? I mean, you know, this was a huge bullet that we dodged, obviously, was nothing like 92 or especially like 1926 before the age of, you know, meteorological technology. But what happens if we get something like a 1926 event in Miami? Is anybody, has there been any sort of Monte Carlo simulation or, or anybody, the Brian Norcrosses of the world that are saying that the, the underwriting community has to be more cognizant of this? Uh, I mean, I, I think so. You just have to look at, at what happened in the Keys. I mean, these, you know, yes, the trailer parks went. Everyone expected that. But there were some more solidly built homes down there that were just wiped off the earth. FEMA is estimating that 25% of homes in the Keys were destroyed. Um, in Even in Miami, we had, you know, these construction cranes go down. We had waters running through the street. Um, I, I'm just, you know, not. I can't even imagine what a Cat 5 storm coming through here would do. You just mentioned FEMA, and I saw a stat you know, briefly uh, in The Economist last week. It said, according to FEMA, houses that repeatedly flood account for 1% of the flood insurance properties, but 25 to 30% of its claims. Five states, Texas among them, have more than 10,000 such households, and nationwide, their number has been going up by around 5,000 each year. Insurance is meant to provide a signal about risk. In this case, it stifles it. Absolutely. Yeah, the subsidies um, and pretty lax zoning policies, especially, you know, in the Houston area, have allowed people to build homes in, in floodplains. That, that was bad when it first started decades ago. It's worse now because the seas are rising and these floodplains are expanding. I really think the coastal states have to come to a reckoning about, you know, does human habitation of these areas make sense in the long term? Nicholas Namas, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and condo investigations guru at the Miami Herald. I cannot thank you enough, good sir. 
Thank you. Full disclosure, you can catch this fine show on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Catch us on Facebook.com slash FullDRadio and Twitter at FullDRadio. I'm Robin Farzad. Stay dry. Back with you next week. Oh,